Hey, Edge of Sports listeners, particularly those of you in the Pacific Northwest, please come on out this Thursday, 7.30 p.m. at Town Hall, Seattle, to see me, Dave Zirin, interview Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett about sports, politics, and everything in between. There's information about the event in the description of this podcast, and hopefully we'll have a recording of it for next week's podcast. But now, let's get to our show. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Our guest this week is the legendary basketball player, Chris Webber. This is when crack first came out. This is when you're starting to see the effects of a parent who had been such a great parent and kids and the grass had been cut, a wonderful household. And then you see her two weeks later walking down the street in the bathrobe. It was something eerie going on. And so when I look at my life, I look at being blessed and thankful that I just had people like my parents that kept me away because I'm a party away from being dead. I'm a gunshot away from being dead. We're going to be talking to C-Webb about his new podcast, Fearless or Insane, as well as his time at Michigan, his time in the pros, athletic resistance today, and the fact that he happened to produce a track once for Nas. That would be Nasty Nas in your area about to cause mass hysteria. Also, I'm going to read an anonymous email I received from a Viking security guard who gave me the ground view perspective of what it was like when a banner was hung in the stadium by protesters, a daring stunt against the Dakota Access Pipeline, and calling people to divest from U.S. Bank. The Vikings, of course, play at U.S. Bank Stadium. We also have Choice Words, the Just Stand Up Award, and a very special edition of Colin Kaepernick Watch. But first, let's start it off with Nasty Nas producer, and oh, by the way, he played some basketball, Chris Weber. Chris, my first question is, of all projects that you could devote your time to, why a podcast? And also, why the name Fearless or Insane with Chris Weber? Both of those things need to be explained to me. Great. Well, let me start with the name first, Fearless or Insane. Uh, I often ask many of the people that I feel have really represented the struggle, such as uh, John Carlos, uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I I often ask them, you know, what uh, was their sacrifice? Because, you know, if you're going to stand up for something, usually I think there's there's a price to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Harriet was in an interview said to me, you know, many people always ask, are you fearless or insane? And <laughs> he made me contemplate that phrase when he asked that. And my definition of insanity is uh, doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. And so I asked many people that protest, that march, uh, that speak out. Some of them say, hey, I know it might not make a change in my lifetime, but maybe in someone else's lifetime. And so I asked them, if you really don't know if it's going to have a strong change, why would you continue to do it? And if you know that it may affect you adversely, are you just fearless? And most of them just answer that it just comes to a point where they can't take it anymore and they have to speak out. And so that's kind of where a fearless or insane came from. And the reason uh, why uh, I wanted to do it is I wanted a platform to express some of my thoughts and some of my interests from whether it's from books I'm uh, reading or from discussions that I've had with friends, but I just wanted to have a discussion in sports uh, in a different way that I had been hearing 
in the mainstream of sports and having been asked to have radio shows or podcasts before, I felt that, you know, as long as I could do it my way, it'd be a wonderful opportunity to share that with some listeners. And so, uh, you know, I have a great time doing it and hopefully everyone checks it out. That's awesome. Now, everyone I know who is a political person has an origin story, you know, like Luke Cage or Daredevil. You know, it's like they have their origin story. (laughs) And maybe it's a book, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it was a parent, but most folks can sort of, in their minds, recreate that moment where they said to themselves, I think I'm going to approach life with a degree of consciousness that maybe I would not have otherwise if not for this experience. What was your origin story and when was it in your life? It starts with my grandparents and then leads to how I was raised. My parents, we just celebrated uh, their 45th uh, wedding anniversary uh, this past summer. And when we were, you know, all kind of uh, celebrating them, our common theme was that we knew from day one what we were expected to do. Uh, My mother, she's a teacher, many degrees. And my father actually stayed first worked in the auto factory for uh, over 30 years. And so I've seen two different perspectives. And so uh, my mother would not necessarily be excited about excellence in sports. Uh, What she cared about was more what happened in the classroom or more of us helping her sign up people in the neighborhood to vote or Mm. uh, get the word out about certain uh, people that may be running for office locally. Uh, And my father was the disciplinarian where uh, he expected us to to help, you know, and as far as in the church growing up and in our neighborhood. So I can't put it on one moment. I'm sure that there are many stories that I could go to and, and relate to, but it all comes back to their expectation of us and how we should be as a neighbor, as a human, uh, as a person, uh, no matter what genre of business or work we got into. See, there are words I hear you say, like Detroit, auto factory, public school teacher. And the question comes to my mind about uh, union consciousness. And was that something you were raised with? Was this idea that workers being able to organize themselves together mattered, that being good to your coworkers and having some sense of community on the job, that that mattered as well? Was that a value you were raised with? I would definitely say it was a value I was raised with, but more so it was a value that I saw. Hmm. So let me just explain, like, uh, the, the auto factory. And I knew the unions helped because teachers were going strike, but it, it, I saw more of a desperation, maybe, on the auto worker side. I remember, you know, when my father was laid off and he and some of his union brothers would go take money to some of uh, the guys that maybe were hurt or couldn't work or to their wives. And I remember some of those guys, you know, helping my father as well. And, and I don't even mean just through the ordinances of the union. I mean, through just the brotherhood of the union. Also, I I know how a $2 increase, or I I know the small things that my father was fighting for, not small, but the things that my father was fighting for were were very big. I remember him talking about uh, how his friends would have limbs cut off. You know, I've just gone back to the factory with my father two summers ago and got to go back and kind of revisit that with him. And we were just laughing and he was just reminiscing and laughing at all the changes, positive changes that happened in the factory because of the union, because of someone speaking and, and fighting for you. So, yeah, when I think about 
a union uh, totally. I don't think about it breaking up bad business. I think about it as a business owner. That would be something convenient for me to say. But, uh, no, I think about uh, how it keeps the community of that company uh, together. And so uh, I've definitely seen the positive effects of the union, especially specifically there in Detroit in the auto workers union. Now, you're still a teenager. You're from Detroit. You're an immediate star at the University of Michigan. And right away, you are speaking out, talking to people, and even acting out against what you saw as the exploitation that exists in the NCAA system. Was there any connection between how you were raised, that consciousness in your home, and your speaking out at Michigan? Yeah, well, on our podcast uh, the other day, I spoke to my AAU coach, and uh, my mother reminded me of this, and this is sad that maybe I I didn't remember it because it should have that large of an impact. But we were 12 years old. I just got with the team, and we're so excited. It's the first time I've ever been out of town, well, seriously out of town, uh, on a trip and away from my parents. And we had to stop off at a funeral first because one of uh, our players uh, passed away. And he wasn't, he didn't pass away, he was murdered. And I remember the anger that my mother had. And I remember uh, the anger that the pastor had and and how it was a moment where everyone was sad at the church, but also ordering kids to not be taken in by the streets, ordering kids to not fall and pray into the system. You know, when I look at my life, Dave, I mean, I'm a party away from being dead. I'm a gunshot away from being dead. You know, when we look at the statistics in Chicago, we say the worst in 20 years. Okay, this is 25 years ago. That's right. This is when crack first came out. This is when you're starting to see the effects of a parent who had been such a great parent and kids and the grass had been cut, a wonderful household. And then you see her two weeks later walking down the street in the bathrobe. You know, it was it was something eerie going on. And so when I look at my life, I look at being blessed and thankful that I just had people like my parents that kept me away because I wanted to do what everyone else wanted to do. They used to call it rolling in because everybody would sell drugs and you have money and trucks and Suzuki Samurais and the, the Dookie ropes. And so I can't act like as a kid, you know, you don't want to stupidly do what everyone else does. It's not like you plan on it, but not like you don't glamorize it in your head and so the reason why I started speaking in college and and other places especially after the time out was because I just wanted them to see that somebody was from the same exact place you know I wanted them to see that you know I, I may have had you know in their mind all the money in the world but at least they know I've been just as broke as them so it means that listen you can do it too now, you were pegged at a very young age as being just a prodigious basketball talent. Looking back, do you think some of the rougher elements in the neighborhood protected you or tried to shield you from something that could have caught you off track because it was so clear that you had the skills to make it out? Definitely. First of all, my father was <laughs> is a disciplinarian and he's crazy, right. man. Like, <laughs> he's a protector. So, you know, he used to make me... Uh, back then, I had to shovel every uh, lady's uh, driveway, and so he would shovel, and he would also make other kids do it, you know, and he might give you money, he might not, he might pat you on the back, he may not, and so uh, it was so many kids that maybe were older than me that 
maybe evolved into a life in which he couldn't reach into them anymore, but still loved them. And so um, Detroit is my home. And, uh, you know, I was able to flourish there. And, yeah, you know, it, it was funny. A lot of uh, family, a lot of friends or, or people that were in the streets, yeah, definitely kept me away. And uh, it's funny when it's the people that's doing it, keeping you away, saying, you know, your father is going to kill us and you. And, and they do this for a living. You know, it's, just, it's mm-hmm. kind of funny to hear those stories, but I definitely had a village to help raise me. It's interesting, though, to hear you mention your father, because I just heard you a couple of weeks ago on uh, NBA TV and talking about Phil Jackson's non-apology to LeBron James. And they asked you for your comment, and you just had this look on your face with a twinkle in the eye and a smile, and you said, yeah, uh, my father raised me to not really a handle situation the way Phil Jackson just handled that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, if in fact Phil had made a mistake and said, you know, this was a posse, if in fact it was a mistake, then I think as a man, the only thing that you could do is just say, you know what, my bad, I didn't mean it that way. If you take it like that, I'm sorry. Now, if you want to have beef after that, that's on him and we can go anywhere. Like, you can go anywhere once you say, acknowledge the fact Mm -hmm. that I did not say that to insult you instead of go around it. And so, yeah, I didn't. You know, and I, I Phil's a smart guy, and when we all know how he's had gamesmanship with players and, and things like that before games, and so me, you know, I definitely assumed that uh, he knew what he was doing when he said what he said. Um, we mentioned the NCAA a moment ago, and we mentioned that, you know, your, your desire to speak out and have these kinds of tough discussions. And I think most people who are listening to the show know the incredible amount of revenue that you and the Fab Five produced at Michigan. The numbers are, are mind boggling. Do you think NCAA athletes, particularly in the revenue producing sports, should be paid? And how, how would you organize that if you could wave a magic wand over that system? Yeah, and this is something that uh, a very close partner of mine, you know, Peter Gilbert, mm-hmm. uh, he uh, documentary of Hoop Dreams, uh, he and I discuss uh, all the time, uh, and it's, it's a changing landscape. And so, uh, you know, stepping away outside of yourself and understanding your experience in it, uh, you know, you understand that you have friends that still uh, have injuries that maybe they're accrued in college and that they can't pay for right now. Uh, or uh, and, and definitely uh, not to dodge your question, definitely made a lot of money uh, for them. But there are a lot of people too that if it wasn't for them on that team, um, we wouldn't have been who we were supposed to be. So I think the value of Eric Riley is just as much as the value of me. Although I do admit, you know, we're the ones dunking crazy highlights and all that. But for what I needed, I needed good people and great teammates. And so I couldn't have been that without. Those guys, and so in my mind, that value is there is the same, and so therefore it should be treated the same. And so um, I think there are many ways to uh, address it. I think uh, one way, and, and you know, just spitballing here is uh, one way you can always put a percentage uh, in escrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, uh, you know, give someone if they say scholarships are so important, lifetime scholarships and things like that, just for family members. Or you can. You know, I've heard so many suggestions, uh, and I'm throwing out some of the suggestions that I've heard, but in other words, what I'm saying is the system definitely needs to be uh, readdressed. When I uh, interviewed Bill Russell and I asked him his thoughts, he uh, he told me that the only time that you get free labor is slavery. And I know that was a serious, heavy word, and so many people uh, uh, responded to myself, responded to Bill Russell. Uh, um, but if anyone uh, could understand, I feel the context of that and the power of sports, he could. I talked to Cedar sure. Gilbert about the situation, and 
you know, he being a, a professor uh, and, a, and an avid sports fan and also someone who's documented sports, uh, you know, 30 years, uh, would say that a kid that gets a scholarship there definitely and not to lessen the value of a academic scholarship, but you study and maybe you can have a job or maybe you can and, and, you know, you go to school, but you're required to get, you know, good grades. Well, as an athlete, Peter would argue that not only do you have to practice eight hours a day, but you also have to study and be a positive student and that that is therefore double. And so I just think it's a system that has to be readdressed. I think that uh, some kids are in a tough uh, situation when you find out in the Sweet 16 that you go to Oklahoma next week and you know how much it is to get a plane ticket the week before you go somewhere, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You, you know what I mean? A $300 <laughs> so, ticket becomes a $1,000 ticket very quickly. I, I mean, come on. And then to get the hotel and all this. And so it's situations where people can't go to games if you can't drive. Brothers and sisters can't go. And, you know, I'm the oldest of five, so I take that very seriously because I see how that could fracture a family, you know, mm-hmm. if something like that would happen. So it's just a lot of things I think has to be thought with care and, and really uh, breaking down and, and not really have ego or or fault involved. Everyone needs to come to the table, vulnerable, open, and say what's the best for kids. And before we have some, I don't know what it could be, but before we have some ugly, some more ugly instances with, with kids expressing their displeasure with the system. Mm. It is so stunning to me that, you know, 40 years ago, the head basketball coach at Duke made probably about, Sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year, and today Mike Shashevsky makes ten million dollars a year, and yet the situation of the athlete is pretty much the same. I mean, so obviously there's a huge financial change in the sport over the last forty years, but very little to reflect that in terms of athletic compensation. Yeah, and it's not right. I mean, I mean, come on, it's, it's not you know, it's not right, but it's it's something you know that I'm. I, I was looking the other day. I think I did a Connecticut forum uh, at the age of when I came out at 21 and I spoke about, you know, these same things. And and so I think for me, uh, you know, a few things are going to have to happen. One, I'm very glad that this documentary uh, with my stories coming out next year and also a book, therefore I can address all of the elephants in the room and and have a full conversation and full context of my experience, what happened, how it was. And then I can address other issues, but you know, Dave, like, I just feel that it's, it'll just be great to put everything get it all out there and, and have this conversation because one thing, I haven't been separated from college is the memories. Number two, I haven't been separated from the players because whether it was uh, me feeling guilty because um, the team going to Michigan State and, and them winning one to my relationship with coaches like a Izzo or other coaches or the fact that I love the game or the fact that you know, I have friends that coach places or the fact that, you know, I want to be in the game. And so um, my relationship really isn't going to stop there. And I don't want to tear the game up, but it definitely, you know, everyone understands just like they did for football with the championship. We have been asking for that for so long and maybe even now they're going to have to readdress it. But, you know, I think something's going to have to happen. And I just hope for the sake of the sport, it happens sooner than later, because, uh, if it doesn't, something's going to have to happen. You just, you just dropped a couple of uh, uh, phrases as you were talking right now, uh, like in the middle of, of of that answer where you mentioned the idea of you doing a book and the idea of a documentary, just bam, bam, as you were talking. And I think a lot of folks might want to know 
about why now? Like, why are you deciding to do a book now? Why why a documentary? What what is that meant to accomplish? What conversations are you trying to start? For me, uh, I was asked uh, a while ago to be part of a documentary, and it was at the last second, and uh, I didn't hear the context, and, and I was really disappointed in the process. And then to be the scapegoat, and then to continue to be the scapegoat. Oh, you're talking about the Fab um, Five documentary. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. It, it, uh, it put me in a position where, I mean, I guess you got to talk about it. You know, I've never said anything disparaging uh, about the university. I mean, how can you say something disparaging about a university when, like, the CEO and the president and all those guys, you know, aren't there anymore? And by the way, they didn't go to Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, I love the students in Michigan. So how can I ever be against the University of Michigan? I don't care about some teacher that grew up in California is teaching there for one day. You know, mm-hmm. I actually went there. So it was funny to me, the media <clears throat> that want to act like they went to the university, but didn't to act like they don't, they didn't bleed blue. You know, I'm both Schindler and I talked often. So I, I know that I'm a Michigan man. And I know that I'm a Michigan student. And so my personality is to let you do whatever, to let you live and to keep on moving. It's always been my personality that let fools talk, let them do their thing. And so um, it put me in a position where I had a wonderful friendship with Peter Gilbert, who has done some of the best documentaries I felt. Mm -hmm. So when I spoke to him and I told him that I wanted to do it, you know, we spent a week talking about why I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with his reputation, his name on the line, it's not like he's going to make a commercial. He has to treat it as if it's a serious subject and I have to uh, go in as well. And it's been a, a really cool process because, it's, you know, the book and it isn't about Michigan. It's about my life. And, and, you know, I was there less than two years. I know Peter and I know he's not going to do it unless he's also talking about your childhood, your family history, yeah. parents, grandparents, neighborhood, because that's how Peter does. He does the deep dive. And so then I got to ask, has it been psychologically difficult to plumb those depths and to take that journey? No, great question. So the reason why I wrote the book is because I basically did the research and I preluded the research. So if we had to go home and talk to friends, it was great. I got to talk to them, uh, friends I grew up with, interview them on my questions. And then Peter's like a mad genius. And so he comes in with the documentary and he goes in places that we've never been before. So it's great. It has two different identities. But, you know, one of the reasons why he told me, you know, really think about it. He was just like, forget, you know less than two years that that you spent in Michigan, uh, he was thinking, you know, what about when you encountered this? What happened when, you know, this happened to your family? What happened? Do you really want to relive all of that? And um, I think it's, it's been the most trying and the most rewarding thing that I've done. This has probably been a five-year process now. And so um, wow. I'm tired. I want to get it out the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm very tired. But, um, you know, I, I think it's cool. And if anything, uh, I think it's really good that uh, – that my brothers, my sister, and uh, all all the kids in the family uh, get to see really what happened. And uh, so it was cool. I'm happy that we get to do it. Wow. When, when, when we think that Peter Gilbert produced Hoop Dreams, I think you got off easy with just five years. Could have been like uh, trust me. <laughs> 10 uh, years, 15 years. Yeah. You, you know what? I think that we're both tired of it because through <laughs> this, I've been able to 
show other players. We've brought uh, other players in and kind of shown them our process. I've shown them kind of me going through things, Peter grilling me and saying what was said, you know, and going over it and ask you the same question 10 times every day for a year. And you're not even realizing until, you know, the end of the year that you've answered it different each way. And, wow, look at this. And just to see the full perspective. And so bringing these athletes in, we've been asked by them to kind of come in um, and do their documentaries. And, and I'm very pleased with that because they see that we'll hold you accountable, but we do take your time seriously. We do treat your family with dignity, but we still have to get to the bottom of it. And as long as that process is there, we can go anywhere you want. It's just don't, you know, don't shit on the people that, you know, mm-hmm. that are innocent bystanders around. And I think uh, what most media don't understand is that's the athlete being protective. It's like you could do anything to me, but not the ones. And as long as you do that, and I've, you know, Peter's done a great job. So, yeah, Dave, I'm really excited not only about that, but the other stories we're going to get to tell. Uh, when I knew we were going to have this conversation, I put up on my Facebook page, hey, does anybody have a question that they want to ask Chris Weber, and I got some good ones. Can I ask you some listener questions before we go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're a bit all over the place, but they're a yeah, lot of sure. fun. So let's just hit them quick and see what you think. Okay, Michael Young wanted to know. He said, please ask Chris Weber about doing production for the Nas track, Surviving the Times. Holy crap, what was it like to work with Nas? And... Um Nas is a genius, and uh, I'm still really humbled that he would allow me to do that. It's it's crazy he would entrust me to do uh, Blunt Ashes and Surviving the Times for him, and uh, I appreciate his friendship. Uh, and uh, he's probably, you know, in my mind, top five rapper. Everybody wants to, but he's, he's a better person than he is a rapper. Tell me what, what, what would I do if I could Invincible, lyrical, miracle man, huh? But back to the matter at hand, cause 10 years ago we all strived to be 25. Some cats didn't make it alive. Dated some stars, but respect their privacy. Cop mad cars laying back in the driver's seat. Held myself down, just steering the wheel. Here I am, completing my whole record deal. Man, it was it was crazy. Whatever he imagined, <laughs> he can take it any way he wants to. That, that, that's what it felt like to me. That, that's what it was, yeah. You still do production? Yeah, yeah, I still make beats. Actually, uh, all the beats for, I'm really excited, all the beats for the documentary. And uh, and actually, uh, the book is going to, you know, I have a, just made a soundtrack for the book just to do. So, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm always going to make beats, man. And uh, so it's something that relaxes me, something that I got doing, uh, I started doing, uh, in D.C., uh, when I was playing there, I would come home with energy. You can't wind down. I start making beats and mm. let people record at the house. And so, you know, I think, you know, people like Nas forgive me. Especially, I mean, after that, really, I don't even have to make any beats anymore after he let me do something for him. But, yeah, it still feels good to make beats. That's kind of like drop the mic on just doing it. <laughs> I work exactly. with Nas. I just quit while I'm ahead. I can't. Nothing else bigger in my life I'll produce than Nas. So I might as well just stop. But it's just something. I got, I got that issue. Who's your like production Mount Rushmore? Who do you look to? Who who are you the beat makers who made you want to make beats? Dang, that is crazy. See, this is why. Okay, because I'm so used to always having basketball questions. I wish I had this. I should know this one off the top of my head. Let me think though. Okay, let me see. All right, Pete Rock definitely. Ah. I was listening. I was listening to his album the other day. Just remembering, straightening it out. 
so Pete Rock. I reminisce for a spell, or shall I say think back? Yeah. 22 years ago to keep it on track. Uh-huh. The birth of a child on the 8th of October. Like a toast, but my granddaddy came sober. Count all the fingers and the toes. Now I suppose uh-huh. you hope the little black boy grows. Yeah. So Pete Rock, uh, Easy Moby, especially, um, man, the album he did, but uh, especially that Tupac, hey, hey, that was hard. Yo, Moby, man, drop that shit. Easy Mo B. You just dropped Easy Mo B. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, Easy Mo B. Uh, I definitely have to go with the Bomb Squad. You know, mm-hmm. they did all the Public Enemy stuff. Ah, DJ Quick. Um, Battle Cat from the West Coast. And then, of course, like Timberland. I know this is more than the Mount Rushmore. And, of course, Timberland. And, of course, Pharrell. And, of course, uh, I know I'm missing some I was, I was a big DJ Premier person growing up. Oh, uh, sure. see, I was about to forget Primo. Of course, Primo. You know what I mean? So, uh, Rick Rubin. Sure, there's a lot of people out there, man. But I'm influenced by, by all, you know, probably R&B and hip-hop uh, producers over, over the last you know, 30 years. And since we're, I'm recording this, calling you from D.C., and since I'm in D.C., I have to ask, did Go-Go ever make it into your uh, turntable, into your five-disc changer? Man, I used to, I'm dating myself, but I used to be at the east side, man, and uh, I've seen Chuck Brown four or five times. It don't mean a thing, you bitch don't got to go, go swing. You go, do what, do what, do what, We're going to do this one over, y'all. Yeah, so my wife is mad at me because I'm from that area and we were supposed to call Chuck for the wedding, but of course I never got to it, so she's mad, but uh, no, big, big go-go fan, man, so uh, yeah, I I didn't understand it until I got there, but you got to you got to watch him dance. <laughs> you got to go there with a live band, and then uh, you'll be upset. You've heard the new Tribe album, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to get it together to make it, yeah. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, I like the new Tribe. Okay, so I got, that was, man, I got off a field with that question. So I'll just run through these. Armando Lara Milan, uh, we'll get you back on the basketball footing, but it's a great question. He said, I'm a huge fan of C-Web's Sacramento Kings teams. Could their high post motion offense compete with the stuff we see today from the Warriors, Spurs, or Rockets, or would they have had to adjust? Well, I think, uh, very honestly, like, uh, you know, Gumbo, you got to put the Trinity in and peppers and the, the onions, the celery, and, and you cook it, and that's just the base. I think a lot of offenses use our offense as the base. I know that because I've been told by that by some of the, the best coaches that, you know, we used to get difficult times to doing it. And so um, we have the right players that could do it, and uh, you have to have a guy that can score from the high post and pass from the high post. you got to have some hell of a shooters out there on the corner. I, I think there's some – Plus, it's to play in the game now. You know, guys like Page would have been able to shoot six or seven more threes a game, and it not been an issue because offenses would have tried to put that in our, in our game plan. And then, you know, I think guys would have got to play center. We would have played smaller lineups. We could have played bigger lineups. So, but who knows, man? I mean, who, who knows? I can't relate the past, but I think, you know, our style definitely could uh, stand the test of time. Man, you just mentioned a lot of cooking. Are you? Do you cook also? Are you? Do you do that? Yeah, man. I'm. I'm a chef, man. I'm. A chef. You're a chef. Yeah, yeah. I'm a chef. 
you know, I think I can cook pretty good. I'm like one of the foodies. I watch shows. I go in the back and ask chefs how they make something. So my thing is I just steal everybody's style and make it taste the way I want. But my biggest complaint is my food is spicy because I really like hot, 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 spicy food. But if you like that, you, you'll definitely like my food. So when you're in a restaurant and you're eating something amazing, you will go into the kitchen and ask the chef what's up. I'll go thank the chef. Yeah, heck, yeah, it's like I'm at his arena. If I could, if I if I can go in the back, I might go thank him. I may say, you know, hello. Um, but I definitely ask, you know, I definitely ask how he made something. Most of the time, they don't tell me everything, but you know, I try to figure it out. But yeah, no, I'm a, you know, I have friends that are on restaurants and. and so, you know, I try to hang out. I try, I try to be one of them. I want to be cool like a chef. So, mm. yeah, I think I can cook a little bit. But my wife, yeah, we, we probably cook, man, six days out the weekend. Oh, uh, we love food, man. That's why I'm so fat. <laughs> <laughs> that last part, I don't know. Uh, the, the last question for you. I, people might not know this about you. I've only learned this about you in the last couple months as we've been talking. But you're a prodigious reader. And if there are some books that you would just, my, my audience out there, you know, these people starve for good reading material. What are some things you would have folks read? Wow. Uh, and just like cooking, I take uh, book suggestions from everyone else. So none of these can really be uh, credited like I found them on my own. But every Paulo Coelho book I've read. So Paulo Coelho by far uh, is my favorite um, wow. writer. I think he's done what The Alchemist, uh, Valkyries, uh, The Pilgrimage. I would also say... Marvin Gaye's biography was was good, but I think you have to be tricky, you know, be careful with biographies because I don't know if if it's true or not, or if he sanctioned it or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, Gil Scott Heron, I love his book. My favorite book is Prior Convictions. A close friend of mine gave me that book, man, and I remember uh, laughing out loud on the plane. And people was just thinking I'm crazy, but it's Richard Pryor, and one of the reasons to go back to real quick to fit us on the same question is that I have a couple friends that are comedians, and I. I believe that comedians are the bravest people, some of the bravest people in the world. I believe like some of the craziest, but I believe the bravest, you know, to be able to go on stage and, and for me to say I had a rough day, make me laugh, uh, to be that vulnerable. And a lot of them go places that I don't think most people go, places of vulnerability, places of pain, whether they empower themselves or whether they demean themselves or whether they totally blow up, they at least go there. And um, so Richard Pryor and reading his book, like at the end of the book, I felt, I didn't feel sorry for him, but I, I questioned myself, you know, would you be strong enough to go through all he's gone through? Mm. You, you know, I mean, raised, being raised in a, in a whorehouse, you know, and the things that he saw. And so to be one of the funniest people and you wouldn't see that. And so it's, it's just, uh, I love autobiographies. I love seeing uh, people get back up after they fall, man. And so uh, some uh, good biographies I've read. I loved Prior Convictions. Bought that on your advice, and I read it in about a week and a half, and it blew my mind, Richard. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that that gets to my absolute last question, which is like you're writing your own autobiography, your own memoir. If it's as raw as prior convictions, it conceivably could hurt you know, everything you're doing now with the NBA. I mean, is it worth it to you to hit that level of truth, even if it damages uh, some of the work you're doing with the league? I don't think so. I don't think the truth really ever, ever damages. I don't think, I, I, I hope it's as good as a prior conviction. You know, when he talks about him and Red Fox and yeah. the Olympics that they had, I mean, I'm just like, you yeah. know, maybe it's just the nostalgia because I'm such a fan of all the people he was talking about. But 
I really don't feel like I'm risking anything. And I, I don't want to get into an old oh, woe is me. I've been painted a certain way because I don't like victimization. But my brother always says, he, go, he always goes, man, people only know one or two things about you. You know, the rest everybody assumes. And so really what it is is hopefully people will take the time to read the book and mm-hmm. um, get a picture for themselves. I, I think that, you know, if you understand who my parents are, how I was raised, and the family I was in, where I'm from, then, then you'll get it. If not, you know, cool. But, um, you know, I, I think it will be something. I know that uh, from some of the kids I've let uh, see certain chapters I've spoken to uh, that are on their way to school, they just got out, maybe on their way to league or been in a league that, you know, it's helped. And so um, I think it's going to be a great conversation. I think it's going to be something that empowers parents, especially parents that don't know what business uh, they're getting into. And I didn't say sport, what business they're getting into. And I think that um, it also may let some of my colleagues that recruit are in the business of basketball understand that most of the time guys, you know, will go with you just because they like you. You don't have to put them in, in a in a, in, a, in a position or it doesn't have to be uh, AAU is not the same as when I came out and I think for a lot of people um, you have to really paint the full context and that's why Dave I've never been excited about talking about that whole situation because as you know we were having a great conversation but for us to really talk about the way that you interview the way you get into things if you were going to write an article on it or you, you know you'd need months days with me you know mm-hmm. so that's one of the things that put me Going back to why I'm starting to write the why I'm writing the book is because there were so many people that prayed and, and wished me well and supported and I didn't speak and let them know anything and I thanked them for that and so hopefully if anything it'll be something for them to look back on and say oh okay that makes sense I knew that and uh, we'll see how it goes but not trying to prove anything really don't care what people think it is what it is and uh, you just got to keep it moving man. Mm, he's a beat maker, a chef, a writer, and he plays a little basketball too. His name is Chris Weber. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dad. I really appreciate Man, it. That was fun as hell. Um, hopefully we can we can talk and be in contact soon. Anything I can do to help with this book project? Man, that would be fantastic. Man, you already know. You're a great writer. When I was talking about books, I should have mentioned, you know, Bad <laughs> Sports good. and John Carlos' story, too. So, <laughs> no, nah, definitely appreciate you, man. Thank Appreciate you, too. Have a blessed day. All right, you too. That was Chris Weber. To learn more about C-Web's podcast, Fearless or Insane, just Google it on the Googles. We'll also have a link for it in the description of this podcast. Now I've got some choice words for you about the possibility that's going on right now in the halls of U.S. Congress and in discussions with the White House about the exoneration of the first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. Hello, children. Jack Johnson, N-Y-C-R-O-C-K-I-N-G, sun in the moon, earth stars are planet, before it's all done, y'all gonna all understand it like, ha. So this push is underway to exonerate Jack Johnson, and it's been long championed by Republican Senator John McCain and Representative Peter King. That's the rank Islamophobe Peter King and not the football commentator Peter King, just to be clear about that. John McCain is, of course, just John McCain. For those who don't know what they're looking to pardon Jack Johnson for, it all goes back to 1913 
when the Galveston giant was convicted by an all-white jury on Man Act charges, otherwise known as white slavery charges, for transporting a white sex worker named Lucille Cameron across state lines for immoral purposes. Even though Johnson married Cameron several months later, the state still pushed the case until Johnson was found guilty. It was a racist conviction aimed at bringing low a fighter who was never afraid to wear expensive clothes, consort with white women, and tell mainstream America that they could kiss his ass. Johnson was also perhaps the most powerful symbol of resistance to white supremacy since Nat Turner, inspiring spirituals and songs of protest from the fields of sharecroppers to the hard labor of chain gangs. Now, Johnson received the maximum sentence of a year and a day in federal prison, but instead of accepting their verdict, he lived in exile for seven years. Then he eventually returned and served his sentence in Leavenworth Prison. McCain was asked by the undefeated's Jesse Washington about whether he believed President Obama would refuse the pardon. He said, I hope not, but I'm afraid so. I'm very confused by it. I have not understood where this is an egregious act of racism that the President of the United States wouldn't want to correct history, end quote. The question is not whether the U.S. government will right this wrong and correct history, but whether Jack Johnson and his family should even allow the U.S. government to sit in judgment of this towering figure for reasons more self-serving than a Trump and Kanye photo op. Jack Johnson lived a rebel's life, and his persecution by this government is precisely part of what makes him such a powerful symbol of resistance to this day. He was both brash and uncompromising in an era when public lynchings against black men took place on a weekly basis. Johnson was not an explicit political figure like Muhammad Ali making speeches against the Philippine-American War, but as a walking self-conscious political symbol, he explored new boundaries. Johnson was flagrantly flamboyant, described as a dandy by a white press shocked by a famous boxer who wanted to look good, dress fine, and not give a damn who was scandalized. From the American Legion to Booker T. Washington, they threw their punches and Johnson slipped everyone like a weak left jab. Jack Johnson's open mockery of the ceremonies of white supremacy made him more than a boxer. It made him the lightning rod of white rage, an exemplar of black pride. This swelled to an apex on July 4th, 1910, when Johnson famously destroyed the great white hope Jim Jeffries. Afterwards, the New York World wrote, that Mr. Johnson should so lightly and carelessly punch the head of Mr. Jeffries must come as a shock to every devoted believer in the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon race, end quote. Now this shock turned deadly after Jeffries was finally counted out. Violent race riots erupted around the country. Their character involved white mobs attempting to enter black urban neighborhoods and being repelled. After the smoke cleared, dozens of African-Americans were dead in the most widespread urban cataclysm that the U.S. would see until the aftermath of Dr. King's assassination in 1968. The U.S. government did not take this moment to decry racist violence, however, but instead they turned their ire on boxing, voting to restrict films of fights and even debated the banning of boxing altogether. They also said about the relentless persecution of Jack Johnson, and this is what led in 1914 for W.E.B. Du Bois to utter his immortal words about Johnson when he said, Why this thrill of national disgust? It comes down then, after all, to this unforgivable blackness, end quote. 
As if it wasn't obvious enough, with Senator John McCain and his history of anti-immigrant, anti-Asian racist baggage, as well as Representative Peter King, the supreme anti-Islamic bigot in Congress, leading this charge, the push to pardon Jack Johnson is more about how this country wants to regard itself today than any sense of righting past wrongs. It is a bellow of the hollow conceit that racism is a disease existing primarily in the past and treating Jack Johnson's pardon like it is part of the healing process so we can move on to our post-racial future and a more perfect union. Pardoning Jack Johnson in this political climate would be an act of swelling vanity, not justice, using his story to sell a lie about the present. We are a country that just used the political tool of 18th and 19th century slaveholders, the Electoral College, to elect a white supremacy sympathizer, even though he received three million less votes than his opponent. This is a sick system, and it lacks the moral authority to pardon Jack Johnson for any reason other than its own public relations. It is not for us to forgive Jack Johnson. The opposite is the case. If he were still alive, the Galveston giant would look at John McCain and Peter King square in their mottled hypocritical faces and say, pardon this. And now people may have heard about the incredibly daring banner hanging of a no dapple that's Dakota Access Pipeline banner at U.S. Bank Stadium during the last Sunday of the NFL season at the Vikings home in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Well, I got an email from a security guard who is there, and I have permission from this security guard to actually read their description. And yes, I'm purposely being gender neutral on their advice because they don't want to get fired. And I'm going to read to you their description of what took place. It's fascinating. So here it is. I took a job this season with U.S. Bank Stadium Vikings contracted security company to make some extra cash, but it wasn't a job I needed. To be frank, I just wanted this job as an excuse to see the new stadium and to be around the games without having to pay. I also wanted to step inside the Vikings game day factory to see how the sausage was made, and boy, did I get an education. With today being the last game day for the organization and with the game being meaningless, I had the same feeling going in, that it was going to be just another Sunday. But of course, that wasn't the case. When the game first started, I was working outside and didn't even get to see the U.S. Bank divest no dapple banner put up. I didn't even notice it when I came in to monitor the upper concourse of the stadium in the second quarter. I was assigned to monitor a staircase at the Verizon gate right in front of a steel beam where the protesters were repelling. Then I saw a horde of Viking officials, firefighters, and Minneapolis PD swarming my side of the beam in concourse, but I still didn't put it together, as I thought maybe the Vikings were doing some sort of salute to the Twin Cities police officers and public officials. Then I noticed a swarm of Vikings fans taking pictures and making videos on their phones. As I turned to look up higher at the beam, I saw the banner, and I saw a clear view of the man and the woman who put the banner atop of the stadium in the air. After standing guard of my assigned staircase, I was moved to stand guard of the beam, blocking half the concourse and making sure that customers, as we call them, kept moving along to make space for others to walk through. But mostly, I was assigned to this spot to make sure fans stopped taking pictures or videos and not let them gain more attention to the situation. That's not let the protesters gain more attention. 
We were failing miserably. And even more, security, EMS, and the MPD noticed. The more they were yelling and barking at customers, aggravating them and making them feel uncomfortable, the more customers took them to task verbally for their actions. Eventually, us security workers were also being called out by the police, not only because we weren't telling others to move along fast enough, but also because we were giving information to fans about what was happening and what the issue was about. Ultimately, Minneapolis PD decided to take charge and they blocked all of the surrounding area and moved all the fans out of their seats. So there ended up being this entire empty section. And it was at this moment where the bleep really started to hit the fan. Everybody started to get super aggravated and verbally aggressive with each other. It was unnecessary and overwhelming and could have been handled much better. Once the game was over, the protesters were still repelled up in the air. And I was now standing guard of the entire block concourse area. Instead of leaving, though, many of the fans stood still to see the protesters come down and seize their opportunity to get their viral social media moment. After about 10 minutes, they finally did come down and they were met with a barrage of epithets. One person called them losers, other jackasses, assholes, get a job, get a life, dumbasses, you're going to hell, and of course, boo. People were saying these things all while still taping them on their phones. It was as if this maddening crowd of football Puritans wanted to go all scarlet letter on these people and give them the Hester Prynne treatment and shame them. It was highly uncomfortable and part of me had to keep my woke side from going on a rant towards these customers. No joke, this was one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen. Through my job as a low-level security worker, I've been able to see firsthand how race, gender, class, police, and politics can subtly and not so subtly be interwoven into professional sports. But this divest event has become the one that will stick with me. But I've also never had a personal experience at a sporting event where I just felt gutted by humanity. Whether one agrees with the protesters' views or not, they do not deserve to be treated like trash because they spoke their mind for a cause they believed in. As I've said before, I've learned many things during my time as a cog in the game day machinery. But the thing that sticks with me the most is the observation that NFL games serve as a form of entertainment for the comfortably numb. We all love different forms of entertainment as they serve as an escape. But when certain types of entertainment become too much for what people can handle, like with Colin Kaepernick's anthem protests, people can get offended and complain because they don't want to have to think. This has convinced me that as entertaining as the NFL can be, this form of entertainment caters to a crowd who prefer to be comfortably numb and to think I believed this was just going to be another regular game day. Okay, some thoughts. First of all, thank you very much to the person, the security person who wrote me on this. Anytime an NFL security guard can drop a couple of scarlet letter references, I'm a happy dude. It was a beautiful description. Second thing I want to say is, yes, that does sound very, very, very unsettling. This idea of people performing this brave act of protest and then being verbally abused and the situation even feeling somewhat violent as they came down. But the third thing I wanted to say is don't be demoralized, please. Maybe the people who are at the games themselves were that ruthless and terrible. But I got to tell you, that image of people hanging that banner, that did go viral. 
And it didn't go viral in a way that people were angry or upset about it. People were inspired by that. Remember, it's not only to talk to NFL fans, but it's also a statement to everybody who's been protesting at Standing Rock. Everybody who's celebrating the fact that they got a victory when the Army Corps of Engineers said they would reroute the pipeline. And everybody who knows that they're going to have to keep up this struggle relentlessly with this new president coming to power. So the hanging of that banner, it's not just about the NFL fans there. It's about all of us who are affected by this issue. And also, I do want to say that my experience with NFL fans, that there's as much diversity among them politically as there is in any other mass sector of our society. But the people who go to the games, yeah, they're going to be more on the side of people who want to be comfortably numb because part of being comfortably numb is having the money to be comfortably numb and going to an NFL game ain't cheap. So don't be demoralized. Thank you for your email, and thank you to those protesters who bravely hung that banner against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award, which this week is going to be mixed with our Colin Kaepernick watch. So this week, the Just Stand Up Award is particularly satisfying because it encapsulates so much of what we've talked about over the last five months with Colin Kaepernick and his anthem protests. So after a season where San Francisco went 2-14, their only wins against that kidney pie of a franchise, the L.A. Rams, the 49ers owner, the prepubescent entitlement child, otherwise known as Jed York, cleaned house, firing the GM Trent Balky and coach Chip Kelly. Yet something else happened this week. The franchise announced on Friday that the team voted to give Colin Kaepernick the Len Eshmont Award, a prize given to the player who best exemplifies the inspirational and courageous play of Len Eshmont, a Navy vet and original member of the 1946-49ers team, end quote. Now, this award does not get a great deal of publicity, but it's a big deal inside the 49ers clubhouse. Now, the granting of this award to Kaepernick matters for other reasons as well. Early in the season, the now-fired Trent Balky tried to feed a line to the press that Kaepernick was somehow dividing the locker room because of his political stance. Now Balky is out of a job, and Kaepernick has been honored by his teammates for his courage. What makes this extra delicious is that so much of the right-wing press, and not a few liberals, tried to brand Kaepernick as anti-military for protesting during the anthem, even though the protest had nothing to do with the military. And here are the players voting to give Kaepernick an award named after a World War II veteran. It shows they didn't buy the hype. They saw what the fans and the national sports press did not see. That on a week-in, week-out basis, Colin Kaepernick dealt with death threats, protesters, rabid fans, and he still stood strong. They saw him put his money and his actions where his mouth was by pledging over a million dollars towards charities involved in supporting racial equality and for going into the community to support youth education programs, as well as speaking to high school sports teams who were inspired by his protests to do their own form of on-field dissent. And Kaepernick didn't just stand strong off the field. And I think this has to do with the award because he's facing all this adversity and the team is an absolute dumpster fire. And yet here's Colin Kaepernick. This didn't get a lot of publicity, but the guy had a 90.7 quarterback rating this year, his best since 2012. He only threw four interceptions, completed just under 60% of his passes, and he also led all quarterbacks in rushing average with 6.8 yards per carry, and he finished second in total rushing yards for quarterbacks to Tyrod Taylor, despite playing in three fewer games. Now, Kaepernick almost certainly will not be back with the 49ers next year. They got to rebuild this franchise, but for reasons football and non-football, I actually really do hope 
Kaepernick stays with this team. On the field, Cap earned the right to compete for his job. And off the field, in the Bay Area, I think it made a big difference in terms of shielding Kaepernick from criticism he would have received in a different city. Now, Colin Kaepernick certainly gets that. He made comments after the last game of the year about how much the Bay Area fans meant to him this year in terms of supporting his right to dissent. And I really think it'll be fascinating to see if he gets another opportunity to keep that relationship between the Bay Area and Colin Kaepernick together. Because I'll tell you something else. We hear all the time about how the NFL is all about winning. Well, if the NFL is really all about winning, then teams should be lining up to give Colin Kaepernick a tryout for next year. But we all know that the NFL is not just about winning. It's about some of the dirtiest politics that exist in this country in the owner's box. And that will certainly play a role in the amount of teams who look to Colin Kaepernick to be a part of their present and their future. But that's the Just Stand Up Award. It goes straight up to the San Francisco 49ers for seeing what I think a lot of us did not see, that on a day-in, day-out basis, Colin Kaepernick showed something that you don't see necessarily on the field, but you see it close up and it's called character. You people out there, you know, you can always call the Edge of Sports hotline 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Yo, Dave, this is Ben Prez from Missoula, Montana. I'm just calling to give you big ups from the Rocky Mountains because I've been listening to your show and reading um, People's History of Sports, and um, I would say you're the realist in the business right now. Keeping it real on, on race, culture, you know the deal, but it's very needed right now, very much needed. So keep it up, man, and I hope to uh, follow in your footsteps someday journalistically. All right. Thank you. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for that call. Very flattered. Very much appreciated. Funny to get that call from Missoula, Montana, just reading the book Missoula by John Krakauer about the intersection of, of, of rape culture and the football team in Montana. Harrowing read. Highly recommended. I'm not sure if I recommend following in my footsteps necessarily. That's a pretty stinky path. But I will say that, yes, writing, journalism, commentary, these are worthy life pursuits and we need truth tellers in this world. So please jump on board. There's always room on that particular train. Highly recommend you read Jessica Luther's book on sportsmanlike conduct. Give us a call and let us know. What are your sports New Year's resolutions? What do you resolve to see this year come hell or high water? What are you going to put all your will towards seeing come into being? Let us know. 401-426-3343. 401-426-EDGE. Well, that's all we have for this week. Thank you so much to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you so much to Chris Weber for joining us. Dan, by the way, great to have you back. Remember, you can always contact me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at slate.com or on Twitter at edgeofsports. Happy New Year, everybody. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. 